0: My dad shared the love of swimming with us, and that's how me and my other sister, Yusra, became professional swimmers. My family, and my father and mother in particular, always fought for us to continue with the things that we love. When you're in the national swimming team, of course, you get special treatment, so we can just go anywhere and swim for free, you know, and then we join any club in Damascus, and then we get sponsored. It's not a big salary, but like it's good and enough money for like an athlete to try to support themselves. And I think I'm very thankful because I love swimming.
1: That's Sara Mardini. She lived in Damascus, the capital of Syria, and she was one of the country's rising swimming stars. In this day and age, when you hear of Syria, you often don't think of what it was like for people before the war. In one of our previous episodes with Nujin Mustafa, we discussed in more depth the ongoing war in Syria, that began when citizens aired their grievances towards their government. They demanded freedom and justice, and this resulted in an uprising against Syria's president Bashar al-Assad. In this episode, we'll hear about a refugee's continuing fight for justice after leaving war-torn Syria.
0: Some of the things that I do in my life right now, and my mental health and all these type of things, is all inspired by my life as an athlete. In
1: 2015, amidst the war in her country, Sara had to plunge into the water under desperate circumstances. I wanted to stay alive. I wanted to fight for my
0: life. I was so scared. I was so scared of the water. I knew the water my whole life, but I was so scared that moment. I even thought I might die. But at the same time, if I wanted to live, I need to figure out a way to survive.
1: This is Finding Humanity and I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Through personal stories of courage and purpose, our podcast puts a human face on the most critical issues facing our world. In each episode, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action on issues that you care about in your own community. And together, help create a better world.
0: We had all type of a sisterhood. We've been competing against each other. We've been fighting with each other at home and being friends in the sport, and the opposite exactly.
1: Sara is talking about her younger sister, Yustra. Yustra became a global figure when she competed in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, which created history as the first ever refugee Olympic team. For the most part, Sara acted like her sister's bodyguard. Their mom would categorize them as polar opposites. Yusra was sweet, while Sara was the more aggressive one.
0: And we've been so close because we had only three years apart, and it was just us. So we literally spent every day together from school to swimming pool to home. We had the same routine. So it's like you're having a roommate.
1: As an older sister, Sada learned how to be independent. There was no
0: one trying to push me down or they say I'm a female, I should stay in the house and uh, just like be in the kitchen. My family always demand me to study, work hard. And I started my first job, I was 12. And I was only volunteering in a swimming pool helping and my father said, it's good to do that because I need to gain experience and I need to learn how to work for free and just gain
1: experience. Swimming was a family legacy for the Mardinis. Sara's dad was a swimming coach, and her mom also learned swimming and eventually became a physiotherapist. Sara lived a pleasant life doing the thing that she enjoyed most. But all of that would change
2: when the war broke out in Syria. It started out as an uprising by Syrians who wanted to get rid of the Syrian government that's led by Bashar al-Assad because of its repressive policies. That's Sara Kayali.
1: She's a researcher from the Human Rights Watch. She's responsible for documenting violations of human rights and international humanitarian law in Syria. Um, Then the Syrian
2: government forces um, turned violent against these civilians, which ended up in a full-blown conflict. We left our family
0: house at the very beginning of the war, let's say 2011, 2012. So we already lost our house. It didn't fall down or anything, but it wasn't safe anymore to live there. And then we start renting from place to place. And every year we spend it in a different area in Damascus. And then at some point, my father got a job offer in Amman, Jordan. So he decided to go. So, And then it was for me and my mom and my sisters alone. And then life started getting harder. You know, the, the economy crisis, the lira went so down in the market. And then, you know, like life wasn't easy anymore. It was unsafe to leave the house every day. Like basically every day we leave the house and going to school, we don't know that we're gonna see each other or not again.
1: The danger to their life, all of a sudden, became so imminent.
3: There were barrel bombs, there was bombing, there was artillery, uh, in some cases, chemical attacks that caused very large numbers of people to finally flee, where they felt that they couldn't live under bombardment.
1: That's Bill Frelick. He's a refugee rights program director at Human Rights Watch.
3: They couldn't live with the prospect of their children also being killed, and it wasn't just a matter of adults that were being arrested or adults that were coming into conflict with the government but the lives of their children were now at stake and they felt that they had to leave at that point.
1: Sada's perilous journey to Europe began in August 2015. In order to escape Syria, they sought information from a Facebook group whose members were refugees from the Middle East. Facebook had become an informal information sharing tool for refugees who were able to flee their country safely and those who were attempting to leave. At the beginning,
0: it was only me who was leaving because my sister didn't want to leave home. But I was 20 by then, so my parents decided to send Yusuf with me because she was 17.
1: Their plan was to fly from Damascus to a neighboring country, Turkey. This decision was made in a week. we have been in the
0: airport saying goodbye to my mom, to my grandfather, and my young sister. My sister was back then four or five years old, and she wasn't understanding what's going on. But then at some point, she understood that we'd never come back. Like a four-year-old child saying goodbye for her other sisters and begging them not to leave. Like imagine how mature she is. Like four-year-old child knows, understands what's going on. And she understood more she's not going to see her sisters again. She was in tears, begging us not to leave. I swear to God, I swear to God, that was one of the most, most, most horrible moments I went through in my life. This moment, I will never forget.
1: As reported by Human Rights Watch, only registered Syrians who obtained a special travel permit have been allowed to travel within Turkey since late 2015. In 2016, with funding from the European Union, Turkey took an additional step and sealed its borders to help manage the flow of refugees into Europe, leaving few options for Syrians trying to flee the brutal war in their home country and those who risk death.
0: We made it to Istanbul. And then from there, the hard work starts that we need to find a smuggler, someone to trust, and someone who makes sure that we make it alive to the shoreline.
1: Throughout our interview with Sarah, you'll hear her mention smugglers. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, smuggling of immigrants, quote, involves the facilitation of a person's illegal entry into a state for a financial or other material benefit, end quote.
2: A lot of the neighboring countries have gotten away with closing their borders to Syrians who are fleeing violence, leading Syrians to endanger their lives by paying smugglers, by climbing up walls, by going through mined um, land to try to get to safety. That's Sara Kayali again. And I think what policymakers fail to understand is that you don't stem the flow of refugees by blocking it. You stem the flow of refugees by resolving the underlying causes that led them to flee in the first place. For people that are quick to judge and
1: are conflating between migrants and refugees, can you clarify a little bit what the process of someone who legally wants to go to Europe or flee to safety would have looked like? And why did people go through those paths and why Europe?
2: So imagine I'm a Syrian refugee in Idlib. Or I'm a Syrian in Idlib, where I myself and my family, my children, experience bombardment on a daily basis, not just once, twice, but regularly, not just this past month, but these past two years. And then I decide to leave. I can't leave legally through Turkey because um, the border is closed. I can't go to other areas because they're held by the Syrian government and I'm either wanted or someone in my family is wanted, or I fear arrest by the Syrian security services which means I'm likely to be tortured and killed while in detention. So you make the decision to leave by smuggling. You pay exorbitant fees, so somewhere between $200 and $1,000 per person. If you have a family of four, that's something that most Syrian families can't afford, but you do it for safety. Then you try to cross the wall and then you have Turkish border guards shooting at you. Or the land is mine and you endanger your life and your kids to reach safety. Your ability to actually apply for asylum legally to Europe is very limited.
1: In the same way, Sada and the rest of her group felt they had no choice but to transit with a smuggler to help them escape the war. To help them survive. Talking with someone who is a smuggler, you know nothing about it's not a good
0: choice as to female to do. He can do literally anything with you.
1: Eventually, Sada and her group met up with their contact. And every smuggler have his own people in his bus.
0: Our smuggler was from Iraq, actually. And We got in the bus with them and with other people, and then they drove with us for 10
1: hours to Izmir. Izmir is a city in western Turkey. And while getting from Damascus to Turkey is only a fraction of her journey, it was already grueling for Sara and those who wanted to escape death in their countries. Sara had an agreement with their smuggler to leave Turkey by boat. But when they got to their meeting place, they couldn't leave immediately. Two hours turned into two days, then three.
0: There's no bathroom, there's no shower. We don't even have tents because we didn't prepare. We have very limited amount of food, no clean water to drink or to clean up your body with. And of course, no, there is no privacy. And of course, there's no internet and there's no phones. There's none of this. It's just going back to the old days of living, you know, no civilization, basically. But then at some point, we said, if we don't leave today, we're going back to Turkey. And then he looked at us on the number, like where 20 people decided to go back. This is a lot of money. So he took the risk of sending us at 6 p.m. from Turkey.
1: To learn more about the resources that are available to refugees while crossing borders, I also spoke to Dr. Stephen Heidemann. Dr. Heideman is the director of Middle East Studies at Smith College in Massachusetts. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a think tank in Washington, D.C. You heard from him in our previous episode featuring Najin Mustafa.
4: Well, with respect to legal resources, you know, that differed enormously depending on which country a Syrian happened to end up in and it's important to note in that regard that in all three of the neighboring countries that hosted the largest refugee populations the vast majority of refugees are outside of any kind of official refugee system they don't live in camps in lebanon there are no formal refugee camps and in turkey and jordan it's probably at most 15 percent maybe 20 percent of the syrian refugees who are in camps where they have access to the services and resources of international agencies that try to provide some support for refugee populations. And in Turkey, by the way, it's the Turkish government, not the United Nations, that manages the camps that contain a relatively small percentage of refugees. And so it's the Turkish government that determines what kind of resources the refugees have access to in terms of legal support.
1: Corsada and her sister, perhaps one of the most unforgettable and widely publicized moments happened when they got on a boat headed for Lesbos. Lesbos is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. It's extremely close to the Turkish border and became a hotspot for refugees attempting to reach Europe. There were about 20 people on their dinghy boat, including a four-year-old child. The smuggler drove them off the shore. But shortly after getting away from the shoreline, he jumped out of the boat and swam back to safety, leaving them abandoned in open waters.
0: Another guy from Afghanistan, if I remember, he took over and he started driving. Of course, 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, the engine stopped working. And then the water started coming
1: inside the boat. Sada said the waves were strong that day and the water was extremely cold.
0: So my father friend, he stand up and he say, why don't we jump in the water and hold the boat's sides and we make it heavy from the sides and stabilize it from the waves and make it light from inside. A lot of other people who did the same just jumped and came up and down. I cannot pull 20 men alone. It's not because I'm a female. I'm a human being at the end of the day, and I cannot do that. I need, like, a superwoman. So we've been, like, all rotating up and down, up and down. And then I stand up to jump in the water. Everybody look at me and is like, is she crazy? <laughs> like, where is she's going? And I did just the same exact thing that everybody did. And then a couple minutes later, my sister joined as well.
1: Sara and Yusra fought. Largely because Sara didn't want to risk her sister's life.
0: At the end of the day, she's my responsibility. So if anything happened to her, I'm dead as a person. Because I cannot, of course, live with the sorrow of losing my sister. So then I start fighting with her, like, go up, go down, go up. And she's like, if you do it, I'm going to be with you in this. And then she stand next to me in the water. We look at each other. You know when you have, like, it's like a dream but it's actually happening. And also in this moment, I realized that my sister is capable of so many things that I never ever thought that she could do.
1: Sara and Yusra were hailed by news outlets as the Syrian hero swimmers who pulled their boat to safety. For the Mardini sisters who narrowly escaped death, it was a month long journey from Syria to Germany. And then we
0: made it to Vienna. And then from Vienna, we we took the free train to refugees to Munich. And then in Munich, they put us in a bus and drove us to Berlin for 10 hours. And then in Berlin, we stopped in a refugee camp and we lived there for six months at the beginning.
1: According to Bill Frelick, whom you heard from earlier, the movement to Europe for Syrian refugees is what you would call a secondary migration.
3: If you look at a map, they first entered the neighboring countries. Overwhelmingly, they went to Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. And they, for the most part, stayed in those three countries for the first four or five years of the conflict. But I think they recognized that it was going to become a protracted situation. They saw little prospect of being able to return to a country that would fundamentally change from the one that they were fleeing.
1: Bill adds that in countries of first arrival, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, it was difficult for refugees to get their children into school.
3: There was quite a good deal of talk about a lost generation of Syrian children, a group that prior to the war had actually, Syrians had been very well educated. The school system in Syria was quite good. And speaking of which, there were many of the parents that had skills that were sort of a middle class, if you will, professionals that saw no prospects. They weren't being allowed to work. They were basically living in limbo and being completely unproductive and wasting years of their lives in neighboring countries that weren't really harnessing the talent that came with that refugee population. And I think they looked to countries like Germany and saw these were countries that would be much more open to them, ironically, than the neighboring countries, and where they might be able to work and lead productive lives and send their children to school.
1: In Sada's case, she started rebuilding her life in Germany as a volunteer in a refugee center.
0: I had nothing to do at the beginning, and I was just taking German classes. And then a friend told me, you speak very good English. Why don't you go and volunteer and help people in the refugee center here?
1: Eventually, Sada joined the European Response Center International or ERCI, a Greek nonprofit organization that provides emergency response and humanitarian aid.
0: I started with doing search and rescue and translation and then we start to have more operations like for example, we got ten washing machines in one of the refugees' camps in Karatepe to wash clothes for families every day. And then started kids activities that after the kids go to school in Lesbos, we give them activities that we help them save the class, but in a more fun way through games. And then we started a medical uh, clinic in Moria Refugee Camp.
1: Sada volunteered at ERCI for years as a way to give back to refugees like herself. But on the 21st of August, 2018, while Sada was at the airport flying back to Berlin from Lesbos, she was stopped for questioning and eventually arrested along with her colleague, the Guardian reports that the Greek authorities charged them with several alleged crimes, including people smuggling, spying, violation of state secrecy laws, and money laundering.
0: And one of the also hardest moments that ever been through in my life, and I will never forget, and I will never forgive. I was walking in the ferry, handcuffed, in front of everybody, in front of my friends, in front of people that didn't know me. And I was so fragile and traumatized because I didn't know how to react to the situation. And I was so broken hearted that day. I couldn't talk like, to my friends. I was just crying so bad.
1: Slada spent 107 days in jail. She was released on bail in December, 2018. Large scale social media campaigns and demands from the European government officials and leading humanitarian rights organizations advocated for her innocence under the slogan, humanitarian action is not a crime. They aim to urge the Greek government not to criminalize providing life-saving assistance to refugees. The trial to prove her innocence is still ongoing. For the crimes charged against her, Sada could face up to 25 years in prison under Greek law.
0: When I was inside, I lost more than seven kilos just from stress. Just overthinking, 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 overthinking. Like me and my colleague who was in there, we literally went through the case 100 times a day. Questioning ourselves, questioning our friends at some point, you know, we didn't know who to trust Even me and her and some point we lost Trust for each other just because of the situation because of the accusations. I was just questioning myself every day I was crying a lot in there when I go to bed because I just had to be in school and I had to be with my family and then I just missed everybody outside, you know, like, my life been taken away from me for no reason.
1: Despite the controversy and fear, Sada remains optimistic and deeply committed to her work in Lesbos, a place that was central to her survival story. She continues to advocate for refugees in Greece and is fully engaged in programs and charitable work to save lives of refugees escaping war. SADA's journey is one of a handful of stories that generated global media attention. But there are millions of others out there, stories of humanitarian workers who happen to also be refugees, that are kept invisible and not championed by the international community. The reality is, the refugee crisis is an extremely complex and layered problem that needs to be urgently addressed.
3: Refugee situations are not situations of choice. These are not ones that you asked for uh, having these challenges, but then the question is, in a chaotic world with war and persecution, how do you manage these things. And how's the best way to manage it? Is the best way to manage it by pushing people uh, into the shadows and, and not recognizing them legally and having them be a gray economy under the table uh, population that everyone averts their eyes and, and tries to ignore? And then inevitably there's going to be exploitation on the one end of those refugees or that migrant population. And there may be You know, by lack of other choices and marginalization and alienation, um, you know, people falling into criminality. And and then it becomes a vicious circle and and things just snowballed.
1: According to Bill, in the human rights field, they are not opposed to screening and seeing who qualifies for protection and who doesn't.
3: Everyone needs a fair shake, though. Everyone needs an, an opportunity to make their case and then, you know, treat them in an orderly way and in a dignified way.
1: What can your average person that says, wow, there's 65.5 million displaced communities or people around the world, what can your average person do to care?
3: I mean, the loudest voices right now, for whatever reason, are what are called the populist voices, which rant and rave about refugees as being a threat, you know, wolves in sheep clothing, terrorists, uh, what have you. And uh, the fact of the matter is that refugees, and I have expanded to, to most migrants too, are regular normal people that are not a whole lot different from you or I. And I think the recognition of that and recognition of a common humanity is uh, certainly a start for anyone. And everyone at whatever level I think has the opportunity to help people to integrate, helping them uh, learn the language, helping kids with their homework, whatever it might be, just to be welcoming. I think that is the most important thing. Refugees, people who are fleeing persecution, people who are fleeing war, are not people who voluntarily left their countries. And these are people who have been stripped of their rights as citizens and have really had to throw themselves on the mercy of the international community that is countries other than the country of their own homeland, their own citizenship, where they no longer are protected by their governments and where their governments are sometimes the ones that are actually persecuting them. And they need to be protected by the rest of the world, not because they're citizens, but because they're human beings.
1: Sada's story helps remind us of the power of giving. She's an example of how those on the receiving end of humanitarian assistance are also at times at the forefront of passing that gift on to others. Empowering people like SADA helps embolden advocacy and accountability for better humanitarian response. But SADA's story helps remind us of the importance of better policies and political action to end war, to open borders helping those escaping violence and conflict, and to create better response systems for humanitarian aid. We'd love for you to join our global movement for change and to take action. There are many ways you can do that. Here are just a few suggestions. Learn more about what countries, especially your own, are doing to protect and aid refugees. Support humanitarian organizations working with refugees on the ground in Lesbos. Lesbos in Greece is considered to be one of the biggest global hotspots for refugees, resulting in overcrowding, ineffective services, and extremely limited resources. Lastly, join the global petition by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International to advocate for the decriminalization of humanitarian aid. We hope you are inspired to use your voice to help create a better world for all of us. Special thanks to our experts who contributed to this episode, Bill Fretlick, Sara Kayali, and Dr. Stephen Heidemann. You have the power to inspire real change. To learn more, check out the links to resources on our show notes and on our website, findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate us and leave us a review to encourage more people to tune in. You can also follow us on social media at Finding Humanity Podcast. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. This season is made possible in part by our collaborating partner, The Elders. While this podcast series is produced in collaboration with our partners, The Elders did not exercise any editorial discretion on this episode. Our executive producer is Camille Laurente, associate producer is Fernanda Oriegas, assistant producer is Diana Galbraith, and our research lead is Martina Vanat. Mixing, Editing, and Music by Maverick Aquino. I'm your host, Hazami Burmada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on our next episode.